Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our final conversation in this series we've been having uh, over the past couple of months around the topic of men and women and the Bible. Yeah, Jonathan, it's been a really good journey. So we began this conversation talking about how the Bible views women, and we looked at Old Testament stories and laws, and we asked, does the Bible support or teach a misogynistic view of women? Then we went through some of the foundational narratives in Genesis relating to the creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and their rebellion in Genesis 3. And we've also spent a little time looking with a bird's eye perspective on some dynamics of marriage that relate to us as believers today. And today we're going to talk more specifically about a few verses and passages that relate to husbands and wives and marriage in the New Testament. Well, yeah. And so, you know, I think the first thing we should talk about is, is how radical, Kathleen, the New Testament is in the, in the way that it subordinates uh, subordinates subordinates marriage and family underneath a person's faith and their commitment to Jesus. Um, in fact, I think it might be even easy for some folks to not see just how radical that that is. Yeah, and what you're talking about, Jonathan, is how there are a number of passages in the New Testament that teach that a person's relationship to God and their obedience to Jesus trumps the social expectations and commitments of marriage and family. And this, you know, especially Kathleen, having been missionaries, and we see this on the on the mission field for sure. This is this is a really radical and and challenging teaching for a lot of folks, um, both in the time of the New Testament and and today, mm, because yeah. humanly speaking, there's no greater hindrance to a person believing in Jesus than than the obstacles that they're going to face from unbelieving spouses or or other family members. Right, that allegiance to family is one of the strongest that we have, and one of the passages that teaches about this is uh, Jesus's words in Luke 14, where he uses really strong language to make it clear that all human relationships are secondary to the believer's relationship to him. He says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father or mother, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And, and here in this passage, of course, we can say it's not just family, but even our own selves that we're supposed to hate uh, to be his disciple. And his point here is that the only thing that's going to drive someone to him is a decision that nothing else in all of the world, even our own lives, are more important than knowing him. Yeah. A person who commits their life to Christ is a person who has said in their hearts, I don't know what's going to happen to me, and I don't care. All I know is that I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I have to have God. I cannot live anymore without him. Mm. And that's the first step to coming to Christ and to coming to faith. It's a, dispos- it's a disposition that rejects all of the world and everything in it. It says none of that matters, not even my own life. You hate it all because it all reeks of death and wickedness and futility and sin, and you just want Jesus. Right, yeah. And of course, um, this paradigm persists throughout the believer's life. Jesus is always to be first and foremost in our commitments and in every aspect of our lives. 
um, no human relationship supersedes our relationship to God. And there are other New Testament passages that speak to this same idea. I mean, 1 Corinthians 7 is, of course, uh, a, a challenging chapter for anyone to preach on because it's Paul answering a number of questions related to marriage that some young believers have asked him. But if you, if you put it all together, the root of his message in that chapter is that Jesus must come first and marriage second. And any decisions we make about whether to get married, how to live as married believers, must be done in the context of a life where God is first and foremost, and where the gospel is central and foundational, and where our lives are governed by what we know to be true about the world and the times we live in, based on what God's made known to us through the gospel. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of passages where Paul, um, he exhorts believers to orient their lives around Jesus. So things like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so our whole lives, the entire life of the believers centered around God. He's everything. And, and so, Kathleen, the very first thing we can say about some specific passages in the New Testament related to marriage is that the New Testament is clear that marriage and all of its attendant dynamics and relationships are to be subsumed under a person's faith in Christ. Jesus is Lord. He comes first and foremost in our lives. So serving Him, following Him, knowing Him is the primary and ultimate purpose of our lives. And and let me just say, Kathleen, that this message is so important to us that it's why even even though we're a marriage and family ministry, we're called cross-life. We're not family life, we're not marriage life, or anything like that. Mm, And it's because the Christian life is a life that's lived in pursuit of Jesus. We follow Him. We pick up our cross and we follow Him. That is the Christian life knowing God, following Jesus, living with him first and foremost in our hearts and our minds and our bodies. That's how you do marriage as a Christian. Yeah. You don't put marriage first. You don't put family first. You put Jesus first. Yeah. And of course, you know, having said all that and really emphasize that, we, we do want to also say that obviously it's about comparative love and hate. Um, you are commanded to love one another, to love the brothers and sisters in the church, to love your spouse, to love your children. Um, And, you know, that's fairly obvious to most people, I think. Um, So the point we're making here is that um, those loves should not come before our love for God. They should not be a more central focus in our lives, because if they do, then the whole thing will be off kilter, and uh, we won't be able to have a marriage or a parenting relationship that is proper, that is um, following God's design, and that's going to flourish. Amen. So, yeah, amen. Yeah. Um, and uh, another important New Testament teaching on marriage is that marriage is established by God as a covenant relationship. Mm, right. So we talked about what this meant, what, what this means, in an earlier conversation related to Genesis 2. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with these terms, then you can go and listen to that discussion. That'd be really great. Um, but, but the New Testament affirms this paradigm and recenters it around Jesus. So the marriage relationship is a covenant relationship, and it ought to express the same kind of characteristics that are true of Jesus's relationship to us. And we've been going into some of these characteristics over the past two weeks, um, but a few passages that reaffirm marriage as a covenant relationship are first and foremost uh, the gospel accounts where Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce. 
And so at the beginning of uh, Mark chapter 10, Jesus is asked, when is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? And he responds by quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, that God made man male and female, and that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And Jesus says that what God has joined, no man shall separate. And this is covenant language. Yes. You know, Kathleen, Jesus, in this passage uh, that you brought up, he's saying here, in essence, that because the marriage relationship is a covenant relationship created by God himself, that it is not permissible for human beings to sever this relationship. But, uh, you know, we should also note that the mindset of Jesus' audience, uh, it makes Jesus' connection of the question about divorce to the nature of marriage as a covenant even more vital. Because he was asked specifically, when is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife? Um, It was inconceivable in the minds of his audience at the time that a woman could divorce her husband. And, And so second, though, notice that uh, if, you, if you look at Jesus' response, um, in teaching the Bible's message that marriage is a covenant, he focuses on the fact that both men and women were made by God. He made them male and female. That's what he said. And that for this reason, the man is to hold fast to or cling to his wife, and the two become one. No, we're not going to have time to go more into this today, but what a passage, Kathleen, what a passage for men to read and study. In other words, if we rush to our modern context and look at divorce as we think about it, where a man or woman, you know, either one can go and initiate a divorce, well, we miss the beautiful exhortation specifically to men. And I'm just going to sum up that that, exhortation this way. Jesus' response to the question of divorce is that marriage is a covenant relationship where the man leaves behind his former family and joins with his wife, and they become one. So it's impermissible for human beings to sever what God has joined. And if we connect this to God's covenant with us, the power of it really hits home. Yeah, because we actually see this connection in Ephesians 5, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. But there, Paul tells husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church. So the marriage relationship is modeled after Christ's relationship with the church. And thus, just as Christ has forever joined himself to the church, so the man has forever joined himself to his wife. Mm. Um, or at least in, in this life. Uh, so marriage as a covenant relationship is patterned after Jesus' relationship to the church, and that means that a man is to be faithful to his wife and his marriage. And this has huge implications uh, for men and husbands as far as how they treat their wives and their marriages. And of course, it all holds true for women as well. And as you said, this was very radical in the first century because Women didn't have the same status or power as men. And so when Jesus says this to the men, he's altering the norm. He's telling them God's way, which is also uh, very protective for the more vulnerable woman. Well, and man, Kathleen, that's really great stuff. I'm really, truly, I think if, if any of us sat and really thought about what Jesus is saying here, I mean, it changes lives and it changes marriages and it changes men in particular. Um, I think since you already brought up Ephesians 5, you know, perhaps we should jump uh, to two other prominent passages in the New Testament related to marriage. I mean, we're, we're going through this, you know, shotgun. There's so much more we could slow down, yeah. but we, we got to get through this series. 
Um, and, and these are these two passages that I'm referring to are, are the so-called household codes in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. And they're called household codes because these passages are very similar to other writings at the same time period where a speaker gives you know, exhortations or commands or guidance to households. Uh, but really, if you compare uh, what Paul says here in Colossians and Ephesians with, with, with non-Christian examples, it's really astonishing some of the, some of the differences. And, and one of them um, is that other writers, when they give household codes, they typically only address the one in charge, you know, the male head of the house. But in Paul's instructions, he addresses wives, he addresses children, and he addresses slaves. Now, that's, that's a pretty big uh, difference, and it's pretty awesome. And, and one reason he does this is because they are part of the covenant community. They're part of the church. And so they're equally worthy of being addressed by Paul. And, uh, you know, Paul himself is the one who said, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no, neither male nor female, that all are one in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't mean that all individual personhood is, is obliterated. I don't think anyone would think that. Um, but what he means is that all social demarcation lines relative to status and power and prestige and so on, they're equally subsumed under and united to one another in Christ. And so Paul addresses all members of a household. That's a really cool point to bring up, Jonathan. Um, I really like that. Thanks for explaining that. Um, and so then I'll go ahead and read Colossians three eighteen through 25. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, <clears throat> fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Thanks, Kathleen. And uh, man, that's a great passage, and thanks for reading it. And what we can say is that Paul starts here by exhorting wives to submit to their husbands and for husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. Yes. And so this whole series we've been doing, uh, we've been explaining, we've been seeking to explain what God designed and what he desires for men and women and marriage. So we've been getting the, the entire view of the matter. Uh, we haven't just been honing in on one word and ignoring the context and, and the brilliance of God's design. But I think at this point, it's very fair to ask, what does submission mean? Oh, wow, Kathleen, so we're talking about that, huh? Oh, man, yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think the first thing to say is that in many ways, husbands and wives are called to submit to each other as mutual believers in God's household. You know, this is something that oftentimes gets overlooked when people talk about submission, uh, most of what submission is applies to both men and women. Um, so things like honor. You know, yes, a wife is supposed to honor her husband, but a husband is also to honor his wife. Uh, it's just like Paul says in Romans 12.10 when he's talking to the church. Paul, Paul there, he exhorts all believers to outdo one another in showing honor. Mm, yes. um, in fact, I would say it'd be great for anyone who wants to talk about or think about submission to first of all, thoroughly read and think through what Paul says in Romans chapters 12 to 15 before saying anything else. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's beautiful uh, as he's talking about the church and talking about uh, submission in, in many ways. 
You know, because sometimes, Kathleen, people act as if submission only appears in the New Testament in relation to wives and husbands. Uh, But in fact, submission appears everywhere in relation to how believers treat one another. Mm. Um, And of course, obviously, we're all to submit to Christ. And that's the essence of the Christian, you know, relationship to God. Yeah. and so moving on from that, though, there, there, there are only really a few things I would like to add that might specifically apply to a wife submitting to her husband. And first of all, I would say that, and actually this is kind of like in the church too, but it's something that a wife does herself. Mm-hmm. It's an internal attitude that guides external behavior and choices. So this is not something that the husband is going to, you know, quote unquote, make her yeah, do. Yeah. And it's not something that, you know, it's not some force of, a social patriarchy. Mm-hmm. It, and actually, here in Colossians, the language of submission is actually in Greek, it's submit yourselves to your husband. So it's the wife's own internal attitude and disposition of submitting to her husband. It's not an external social thing or anything else. Yeah, that's a really good point. I like that you emphasize that it's, some, it's an internal disposition that she's um, willingly doing. It's mm-hmm. not about someone forcing her. And so I think whenever you get these kind of subcultures or cults even where um, women are being forced down and um, told their place, you, well, what is that? That's not, that's not a woman willingly, joyfully uh, having this disposition. It's, it's something else. And secondly, the heart of submission is trust. A woman trusts her husband to lead the family toward Christ-likeness. And as we've talked about before, this trust is rooted in the husband's call to use his position to die to himself for the sake of his family. His authority, as we talked about, is about responsibility, about giving himself, even his very life, for the sake of his wife and children. So this um, kind of trust isn't blind trust. It isn't trust based on nothing. It's, It's not trust that can be trashed and trampled on and it just keeps on trusting. It's trust rooted in the husband's call from God. And that's a very um, sacrificial call. And thirdly, uh, godly submission speaks to a wife's intimate vulnerability. In marriage, she's to pursue intimate vulnerability with her husband. And even though her husband will do hurtful things, um, they're sinners, she should always pursue wholeness and healing in marriage whenever there's been a break because of sin. But she should never have an attitude that cuts her husband off, shields herself from him, or lashes out. Um, And the last thing I would say is that godly submission will have similar characteristics across all places, times, and cultures, but it'll also look different in different places, times, and particular circumstances. Man, that's really good, Kathleen. And, you know, when you said about, when you're talking about trust, I mean, of course, none of this is exclusive only for women to men, but trust will look different, you know, based if you're a woman or you're a man, just because you're, you're different, you know, you're, you're different. But, but I think, you know, for me, trust is so important in, uh, in, in marriage. And, and so, you know, it's why submission done biblically is a beautiful thing. And, and it's such a, a beautiful expression of God's, our, of our relationship with God and our trust in Him. Um, and the last thing I'll say, Kathleen, is that uh, we need to be very clear here. Paul, for one, uh, he does not view submission in negative ways. You know, here in the U.S. and our culture, we, we tend to view submission as bad because we think, you know, inherently in our culture that the ultimate good for all people is individual autonomy. And, mm-hmm. and so we see, we, we, we are prone to see language of submission in any context to be simply a pretense for oppression and corruption and inequality and injustice. 
And, you know, so individual autonomy, that's the ultimate good in American society. Uh, I can't say that enough. You know, the individual autonomy, that is the ultimate good in our society. I mean, that's how you talk about, you know, abortion, right? Um, And so for this reason, whenever we, even as believers, hear these kinds of exhortations in, in, in to Paul here about wives, I think we're, we're prone to, we want to quickly qualify it and, and to defend Paul in the Bible and Christianity from charges of sexism and oppression and misogyny and so on. But the question that I would ask any believer is what does the biblical teaching have anything to do with the ways of the world? Now, just because in the fallen systems of the world, submission can sometimes be a pretext for oppression or injustice, that has nothing to do with the Bible. So we want to be very clear not to read into the Bible things that have nothing to do with the biblical world, which is not teaching anything about you know, oppression or evil. It's teaching uh, the way that human relationships are, are to work according to God's design, which will lead to flourishing and blessing and joy and happiness and so on. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true in a, on a lot of subjects. Um, don't right. read in um, the effects of sin into the Bible's commands. Um, and yeah, you're you're right, Jonathan. The Bible does not agree with us Americans that individual, you know, complete individual autonomy is the ultimate good. In fact, the Bible sees this as indicative of a person's corrupt desire to be like God. Um, so we really want to rid ourselves of the idea that. Um, our own individual autonomy, doing whatever we want, however we want it, whenever we want it. Um, It's all about us. We need to get rid of the idea that this is the ultimate good whereby we measure happiness and success and meaning. And um, we should also add that while this this high valuing of autonomy is inherent to all people because it's an inherent part of sin, there is a uniqueness to American culture that stresses this as the ultimate good over and above all others. And even in many cultures today, even by human measures, individual autonomy is not seen as necessarily a social good, definitely not the highest social good. So we do want to be careful not to let our cultural assumptions and values color Paul's words. Well, and Kathleen, if I can add just real quickly in here, you know, with this whole, this whole language of autonomy, obviously we're not saying that human beings are to, you know, you know, we're not encouraging enmeshment or this idea that, you know, you're just to lose yourself in other people. And, and you know, uh, there's, there's very negative ways you can go in the other extreme, of course, as well with conformity and, and those kinds of things. But what I would say is just that, you know, as, as, as Americans, we are very sensitive to our to how relationships uh, bring about limitations on us as individuals, and I think mm. you know people. I always hear you know Christians say we need more community. Why don't we have community? Why don't we know each other more? Well, part of the truth is that as Americans, we kind of like not having those limitations that come with relationships, with commitments to other people, whether that's formal commitments, uh, formal commitments, or informal commitments of yeah. just being there for other people, giving up some of my time, some of my you know we I right in my own flesh, I want all this freedom and and we have so much freedom in this country and so what i'm saying here about autonomy is that you know when it comes to marriage um you know that that is a a beautiful uh picture of two people in a sense limiting themselves in a lot of ways but then through that limitation you of course experience the way god actually designs us human beings to live yeah jonathan that's a great point i really like what you said about relationships they're inherently limiting and you can see that in marriage and in parenting and even in the relationships we have in church and our community if we allow them to go that far. Um, but within those limitations is immense freedom for both parties. 
and we see it the most in marriage. And for Paul, a wife submits to her husband is an expression not only of her love for her husband, but ultimately her love for God. A wife honors her husband, respects him, and submits herself to his leadership, not because he's perfect or because he is her God, but because Jesus is her God, and she's living to please him. And as she honors and submits herself to her husband's leadership, she's living in obedience to God's will and thus bringing glory and honor to God. And Kathleen, you know, I'm so sad that we have to say this, but we should just say to make it clear that obviously the Bible is not at all justifying or excusing uh, any kind of spousal abuse. Um, as we've already talked about earlier, you know, the Bible has nothing to do with wickedness and evil. And so, uh, and even more so, I would say that church leaders, you know, part of their call from God, not part of it, their whole call from God, is to shepherd the flock. And that means to protect them, to guard them, to shepherd them. It means that um, whenever a, a wife or a husband in the church it lets them know that there's some issue in, in the marriage, that they are beholden to God to act. And, and this applies in cases of physical abuse, emotional abuse, spousal neglect, adultery, or any other kind of sexual immorality, and, and really in any case where there's habitual sinful practices and choices or behaviors that are, that are affecting a person's marriage and family. Yeah, and sadly, in some cases, uh, church leadership does not respond well to abuse. They may dismiss reports or allegations. They may fail to report criminal activities to the authorities, thinking, well, we'll just keep this in-house. You know, we'll take care of it. Mm. Um, They may fail to protect the vulnerable party moving forward. And there's many reasons this can happen. I think some of the main ones relate to leaders not being equipped to know uh, what the law is and not equipped, not knowing what the biblical stance is on the exploitation and abuse of the vulnerable. Uh, I think sometimes it's fear of getting into something messy, Sometimes it's laziness because doing the real work of discipline and shepherding the, the church, is it's bloody and it's tough. Um, and I think sometimes people don't want to believe that such horrible things can happen, so they just ignore them. Well, and Kathy, so, it's also the issue, too, not just abuse, but uh, reports of any kind of infidelity or, or even uh, undermining or how to put it, underestimating the significance of of, of, you know, mm. struggles, struggles with pornography. Yeah. Like, oh, well, everyone struggles with that. You just love your husband. I think, uh, unfortunately, I think too often some women get abused by the church yeah. by the way that they, they honestly, they kind of pile on the abuse of the husband because mm. when a wife does bring something to their attention, they respond with some, in some way, uh, shape or form, as you already mentioned, that either kind of uh, blows it off or, or even maybe uh, harmfully will tell her to, to just sort of buck up, you know, and, right? And, or forgive and forget, you know. Just and so, on. as you said, you know, church leaders. If you if you're if you're in a church leadership position, it is in, is inexcusable for you not to be ready and prepared uh, to enter into these kinds of situations because it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. And and so, church leadership, no matter what system of government your church is, you know they need to be willing and ready to step into these messy situations. As you said, that's yeah. what that's what the call is. Yeah, you know the call is not to sit in, in a room and smoke a cigar and talk about theology <laughs> all day long. Decisions. That'd be great, right? Or budgets. The call is to be there in the midst of everyday life with your flock. Uh, 
loving them, shepherding, guarding them, protecting them, and yeah. all the ways that sin is is ruining and, and harming and hurting us. And so these issues are not a matter of if, they're just a matter of when. And so churches need to be ready to go when those issues come. And, and we already have, a, have, a, have an agreed-upon culture that we care about these things mm. and not only, not only, of course, react to them when they, get, when they get shown up in the church or people bring them to their attention, but then, of course, proactively in your culture of your church, teaching and leading in a way that, that says these things are important. Yeah. Well, and getting back to our text, um, so in addition to Paul's instructions for wives to submit to husbands, Husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh with them. And, you know, you, you don't want to interpret these verses in an absolute or wooden sense. What I mean by that is just because <laughs> Paul tells husbands to love their wives does not mean he doesn't want wives to love their husbands. You know, sometimes people bifurcate these commands and they turn it into this thing where wives just need love and husbands just need respect. And that's ridiculous. We're all human beings. Men very much need love in a unique way from women. And women very much need respect in a unique way from men. Amen. At the same time, this command for husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them is a really radical command in the context of a household code, like you were talking about, Jonathan. If you read other similar codes outside the New Testament, there's no command for the husband to love his wife and not be harsh with her. Um, That just wasn't happening. No one was thinking that way. For Paul to lay this exhortation upon men, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, is truly unbelievable in this day and age. Yeah, the other household codes would would go something along the lines of, you men, you know, make sure your wives are doing these things, and make sure your children are doing these things, and make sure your slaves are doing these things. It's all about, you know, the husband exerting, or the the head of household exerting his command over the home. And it would never be... human nature. It would never be husband, you know, sacrifice and love your wife, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And so it really is radical when you compare it, and it's it's awesome and fantastic. And, and of course, you know, it it gets back to the whole picture of, 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 you know, Christ's relationship to the church as the model of the marriage relationship. And and so, um, you know, as I said, Kathleen, th- this is this is so radical compared to the ancient world. And you know, when when you think even in the Bible, just as the, earlier we were looking at the gospel account, you know, what are these Pharisees? What question are they dying to bring to Jesus? These conservative religious scholars. Hey, Jesus, right. when do you think we can get divorced from our wives? Huh. I mean, That's a great point. And if you go and you go and read other rabbinic writings around the same time, there's a lot of really awful things that are said about women amongst "quote unquote" conservative Jewish people. And so, you know, for Paul to write these words um, at this time and place when men could beat their wives, they could sleep with prostitutes at the temples, they could divorce them at will, and so on and so forth. Um, there's just no way to understate the newness of Paul's command here for for the believers in Colossae. Um, so it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And as Paul exhorts men to love their wives, he would also be telling them that the, the love they're supposed to have for their lives should be the same sort of love that, Christ, that God has shown to us through Christ. It's characterized by that love. It's a love that blesses, that's self-sacrificial, that respects, that honors, and so much more. Yeah, and, and of course, it's a love that that is... Faithful all the time. It's not an emotional, you know, passionate thing. It's a love that day in and day out 
is is a disposition towards one's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can just make one more comment, Kathleen, if, if anyone really has a problem with Paul's words here for wives to submit to their husbands, all they need to do is just read the paragraph right before it in verses 12 to 17 and let those words sink in. Then I think they would easily see how wrong it is to take the language of submission as an excuse for any kind of sinful or oppressive treatment of women. Yeah, and um, let me read that real quick. That'll, I think that'll put all of us in the right mindset as we discuss this. So this is Colossians three twelve through 17. And it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Gosh, so good. Yeah, very, very good. That's a great point. And um, in terms of Ephesians 5, we have a similar household code and a similar exhortation by Paul, only with more details. So in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, Paul first exhorts women to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And then he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So it's the same basic exhortation as in Colossians, only we get some more detail. And Kathleen, if I can just add, just, you know, you read 12 to 17, it's so beautiful. And just, again, it gets back, you know, the, the language there, you know, he says, have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint, again, this is just talking about Christians in general to one another. Oh, yeah. How much more should all these apply in marriage? You know, if yeah. you have a complaint against one another, you forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And, you know, and so above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. And this is just, again, if this is true for your relationships with your brothers and sisters in the church, my goodness, of course, all of this is even more so true in marriage. What what drives me crazy is when people rip these passages out and say, you know, here's a passage on marriage, and then they write a whole thing about it. It was like, well, yeah, but you have to read all of this in the context of the believer's whole life. Yeah. And, and all the silliness of the talk about what people get into just disappears when you do that. And, and and so and as we said at the beginning of this, yeah. at the beginning of this conversation, you know, when you couch the, the the language of submission about in marriage in the broader language of submission to all believers, which is ninety nine point nine percent of all the teaching of submission in the, the the New Testament is to all believers, all those worries and fears and anxieties they truly do fall away. Yeah, once we stop thinking about our rights and what we can get away with and what we can force other people to do, um, and and we're thinking about our our job, our command as believers and as imitators of Christ, who yeah uh, took on you know human flesh and yeah the whole was Philippians too incredible you know. example of humility um, yeah. and submission you know yeah as you said all of those silly discussions. They fall away. They fall away. And yeah. you know, back to Ephesians 5, the only thing I would add there, it's yeah, essentially uh, the same basic exhortation. The only thing I, w- I would say is that um, all of the instructions to the husband 
uh, are in both passages radically countercultural, and you know it's 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 noteworthy that Paul spends a lot more time addressing the husband in the Ephesians passage than the woman. I think that's not a mistake. It's because as the one with the responsibility in, in the home as the spiritual and covenantal leader, he's the one who gets addressed the most because there's a lot riding on him, mm-hmm. and and so. Um, you know, we've already mentioned the fact, too, that in, in the Ephesians 5 passage, Paul very clearly exhorts the man to love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Mm. Um, but you know, these kind of dynamics that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, that we've been reading about even today, they would have made a Christian marriage and a Christian man and a Christian woman a very different kind of person than a non-Christian one. And I don't, I don't think we could over, overstate how, how much of a witness that would have been in the surrounding culture. And can be today. Yeah. And to put what you said another way, it's it's not demeaning to women to tell them to submit to their husbands as the, the church does to Christ when the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And as you said, such a marriage is a powerful witness to the reality mm. of Christ's lordship in a very tangible way to nonbelievers. And it would be very attractive uh, to people in ancient times, maybe even more so just because of the incredible difference between this teaching and, and that of the culture and, and a means by which they w- could gain an interest in the gospel. And, and, you know, as I said, in today's time too, um, this is not a picture of marriage. We don't have um, nearly the same patriarchal form of marriage now. Um, women have much more freedom and rights, and that's all very good. Um, but one thing we have certainly lost in the general conception of what marriage is now is the intimacy and the trust and um, the way that the husband's loving and sacrificial leadership uh, inspires his wife's trust and um, and love in that way. So, Well, Kathleen, this has been an awesome series. And just for folks out there to know, we are going to kind of package this up in a way that will make it easier for you to go back to it. If you, if you miss part of it or you're saying, you know, I know we, we don't want this whole series to get buried in, in the midst right, of a lot yeah. of other things. So we will make it a kind of a standalone thing that you'll be able to get easy access to and also share it with other people in your church, in your community, mm-hmm. because obviously uh, we've, we've touched on a lot of things that, that, that people talk about a lot. I've been on Twitter and I see how much people talk about things and I always want to say, well, hey, we've been talking about that in this in this podcast. And so, you know, uh, we want to have that easily available. So we're going to do that and we'll, we'll have more information about how you can access this series down the road, if you want to get back to it or share with other people. Uh, and Kathleen, I have I have grown immensely through this co- series mm, we've been too. doing. And and of course, we'll, we'll return to marriage and, and women and men, I'm sure multiple times throughout uh, our cross-life you know, podcast and, and teaching because it's, it's important. And there's so much distorted teaching and confusion out there. And so it's been great. I want to thank you all, the uh, listeners, if you've been able to listen in and give feedback. Thank you so much. You can you can contact us at any time uh, by email through reach out at, uh, at uh, crosslifetoday.org. That's reach out at crosslifetoday.org. And again, our website is www.crosslifetoday.org. You can go on there where we have other articles and, and podcasts and a lot going on there. And we are a listener-supported ministry. So if you feel so led, please go on to our website. You, we have a, a whole thing about donations and how you can do that. Uh, for all of you out there, thanks for listening in. We hope you have a wonderful day. Take care and God bless.